You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Well, summer's back, right? We had those uh, few nice days that reminded us of spring and it's back and it's heat. <clears throat> Michelle and I were not too long ago on vacation and we were at the ocean. Um, <clears throat> have you ever been in the ocean? And had a, how many of you had had a wave catch you by surprise, knock you over? Some of you? Yeah, a lot. It really catches you off guard. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and while we were swimming in the ocean, I, I now have a, a huge respect for the ocean um, every time I go out in it because once a long time ago, I almost drowned in it. And it was kind of scary. Uh, everybody was out body surfing. I was in Florida. And I thought, oh, I want to try to learn how to do that. So I went out and kind of mimicked what they did. And it all was going great. And did it for, you know, half of the day. Things were good. And rode the waves in a ton of times, swam back out, rode the waves in. <clears throat> and one of the times, I don't know what happened, but one of the waves caught me and kind of tossed me around a little bit like they do. And so I waited for it to pass and started to swim for the surface. And I ended up hitting the bottom instead. I was like, oh, well, surface is the other way. So I turned around. Another wave came in. It must have tumbled me around. And I thought I was heading for the surface. And I hit the bottom again. And this just happened over and over and over, like five or six times. Well, I, I'd taken a big breath, but I'm starting to run out of air now. I thought, something's got to happen here soon. So I started swimming a little bit more frantically and kept still again, just hitting the bottom, hitting the bottom. These waves, these waves that I was body surfing on were just kind of holding me on the ocean floor. I don't know why. I thought, what is going on? This is it. I'm out of breath. I can't hold it any longer. This is how I'm going to die. This is so silly. I'm in chest deep water and I'm going to die in the ocean. And I'm a water guy. I grew up in the water. I'm, my wife always checks me for gills back here because I'm so comfortable in the water. <clears throat> I finally just gave up. This is it. It's over. I quit swimming. I quit fighting. I was holding my breath as long as I could. I was going to have to breathe in and suck in the water and that was going to be it. And all of a sudden, when I stopped fighting and stopped swimming, I popped up. Gulped that in that air and was grateful that I had my life back. <clears throat> I didn't know Jesus is my Savior at the time, but I guess it wasn't my time to go. God had plans for me. We're going to study Jonah chapter 1. There's a lot that takes place in the waves and in the, in the sea. You can turn, now, turn there now if you want. We're going to look at Jonah chapter 1. Um, we have Bibles at the ends of the rows for anybody that uh, doesn't have theirs. And if you don't have a copy of the scriptures at home, we want you to take that one with you. I think it's important to have access to God's word in your hands. So Jonah is one of the best known stories of the Bible. Um, this whole book is the story of Jonah written by Jonah. So Jonah's telling his own story. So don't get confused when Jonah speaks of himself in the third person. Mike doesn't like when people speak about themselves in the third person. <laughs> Mike gets confused when people do that. So Mike is not going to do that. But Jonah does, and I'm okay with that. Um, this book's a little different than some of the other minor prophet books, where those books speak a lot about what that prophet was telling the people, what God had called him to say. Um, this one speaks mostly of Jonah's own story, um, especially chapter 1. It's about how his heart rebelled and strayed from God and strayed from loving God and strayed from loving God's people. So first we'll look at an overview a little bit of the whole book of Jonah, just very shortly. Um, <clears throat> then we'll get some historical background. Then we'll read the passage. Then we'll see and dig in what, see what God has for us. So, so chapter 1 on Jonah is about his calling and the sea and being swallowed up by the great fish. We all know that story. 
Chapter 2 covers his time in the fish and what happens there. Chapter 3 goes into um, the greatest revival in all of history. And then chapter 4 tells us about uh, the wideness of God's mercy. So these four chapters, if you think about it, they kind of tell the gospel story throughout the whole book, if you put it together. Chapter 1 being about creation and fall. 2 and 3 being about redemption. And 4 talking about new creation. So today we're going to see God's calling on Jonah and his rebellion against it. And we'll see how that rebellion puts separation between him and God. How it brings a a corrective hint of a glimpse of God's wrath. We'll see how God's wrath is satisfied. And then we'll see how patiently and lovingly he shows himself to everybody. And then finally through all that, we'll see how he preserves his chosen ones. So let's start out with a timeline. Out of the three minor prophets that we've studied, um, we've studied them in reverse chronological order. So what we're going to study in Jonah actually happened first, about 750 B.C., and then about 100 years later in 850 B.C. were the events of Habakkuk, and then about 200 years after that were the events of Malachi. Uh, Let's look at a little geography. I think we have a map we can put up. Let's see if that pops up. Um, Basically, and... Uh, let's see. Okay, see Jerusalem over here in the green? That's roughly where Jonah lived. Uh, that's roughly where his, his uh, hometown was, not too far from there. And Joppa was pretty close to that. Um, Nineveh is going to be to the northeast, kind of up where that word Parthia is, roughly. And then uh, over here, over by Spain, is uh, where Tarshish was. So this is kind of the known world as they knew it. So as you can see, Tarshish is about as far west as they could go, and Nineveh was almost as far east as they could go. And we're done with that. Thanks, Josh. Uh, Let's see. So remember that the Jewish kingdom had just been divided into two about 100 years before when they were under King Solomon. So the uh, southern portion was now called Judah, and the northern portion was still called Israel. Babylon had not yet moved in and conquered the southern portion, and Assyria had not yet fully moved in and conquered the northern portion. But Assyria did deal very harshly with the north, and they had a history of it. They were well known for uh, great prosperity. They had unstoppable power. With that unstoppable power uh, came brutal, horrid violence. They were known to pillage and desolate their defeated enemies, and like stuff worse than your mind could even imagine. Stuff, some stuff is just too grueling for us to mention here with families. So the capital of Assyria, the country, if you will, of Assyria, uh, was Nineveh. And this was a huge, huge city. They had just built new streets. Uh, they had squares. They had a canal system. It's all surrounded by a great wall. They had this huge, elaborate palace that they had just built. <clears throat> it took three days to walk across just the city of Nineveh. To give you a little reference, you can walk, an average walker can walk from the arch to here in about eight hours. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of how big this place was. So while Assyria hadn't yet completely fully taken over and conquered them, everyone's still very afraid of them. At one time they had moved in and laid siege, and uh, they were forced to pay this huge financial, crippling financial tribute to Assyria. Uh, Let's see. Now Jonah. Jonah had a reputation for being a good prophet. There's an example of that back in 2 Kings 14. You can read about that if you like. But I thought this was interesting. His name, Jonah, means dove. 
I remember God used a dove during the great flood to fly out from the uh, comfortable, sweet refuge of the ark out into the nowhere, into who knows what, to try to find evidence of land, evidence of this new creation. And here God sends this dove, Jonah, out from the safe refuge of his hometown out into the hostile areas of Nineveh in the hopes that those people are going to be restored and know God. So who says the Old Testament isn't filled with the gospel, right? Uh, All right, so let's pray, and then we'll read our passage. That's a little bit of background. Fathers, I stand here before you, lost in working in my own strength, but emboldened when I'm in your strength. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by my might or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I ask you, God, to take away any futile effort to preach your sermon. This is your sermon on your word. Preach it to us today, to our hearts. As we study your prophet Jonah, Lord, fill us with the Holy Spirit that we might hear your word and be drawn to you through it, knowing that you love us all and that you preserve your chosen ones. Amen. So I'm going to read Jonah chapter 1. But remember that when these folks are talking, that there's a huge storm going on. Picture them trying to yell above the wind and that the rain is pelting down on them like little needles because the wind has whipped it up so hard. This is a huge storm and they're having to scream over it to hear each other. So just keep that in mind as as I read. I started to try to read it that way and when I did it at home, it sounded pretty obnoxious. So I'm not going to do that. Maybe I'll do it with one line. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. 
Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There's a little bit of controversy out there about amongst theologians whether or not this is a true story or a parable because they say that it's just too unbelievable. They can't find a fish that could sustain life for three days, blah, 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 blah. In my mind, <clears throat> this is the God of miracles they're talking about. They're talking about a God who can create the entire universe, but he can't create a fish that somebody can live in for three days. So, I don't know, to me, this seems like kind of a pointless argument. Either way, whether it's uh, true life or parable, I say it's true life, um, <clears throat> the points are still going to be the same. So don't let, don't let yourself get hung up on that. So it starts out, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That alone is just amazing in this chapter. This wasn't an inkling, it wasn't a feeling, it wasn't a guess. God was crystal clear on what he was calling Jonah to do. Arise and go to Nineveh, a very specific city. When the word of the Lord comes to you, you, well, enough said, right? Now, it was common thinking back in that time that God was associated with territory, that he was very regional. So, Jonah's supposed to go about 800 to 1,000 miles to the east, and instead, he sets out for a place that's about 2,000 miles to the west, to the farthest end of the earth as they know it, like we saw on the map. It's far away from Nineveh as a person can physically get, putting a total of about 3,000 miles between where he's supposed to be and where he's headed for. And so the more the distance, since they thought God was regional, the less chance that God would find him. And we look at that and we think, how stupid is that? You can't hide from God and avoid his will. Yet how many times do I ignore God's better plan? Maybe God won't notice. I just try to make my easier plan work out. Maybe I shouldn't be quite so quick to call out Jonah. God says, go and tell them that their evil's gotten so bad that I just don't want to take it anymore. All in the hopes that Nineveh will repent and put their trust in him. Now this is highly, highly unusual because these are non-Jews. Jonah's being called here to be the first foreign missionary. An idea of God redeeming non-Jews? That's unheard of. It's absurd. So why did he run? Well, a couple of reasons. First, he was scared. It's kind of like telling somebody uh, today, uh, go to this Al-Qaeda fighter who's their chief beheader and tell him that what he's doing is wrong. Another reason, Jonah knows of God's mercy. He's seen it time and time again in how he's treated Israel, right? Israel rebels, and then God comes to them, and they repent, and God forgives them. <clears throat> so he's thinking, what if I go here, and I tell these people all of this gloom and doom and destruction, and then God has mercy on them, and that uh, they, are, they are revived. He thought he would lose credibility. 
So his pride's at stake here as well. Also, he doesn't like the Assyrians in Nineveh. After the things they've done to Israel and to others, why would he reach out to the lost people that are a mean mess? He'd rather see them destroyed. He kind of he hopes they go to hell. He's got a wrong attitude about God's word, God's will, his own circumstances, his Gentile enemies. His heart's in the wrong place. And in his running, he's actually turning to his own ideas. And he's actually paying money to flee away from the presence of the Lord. You know what they say hell is, right? It's being out of the presence of God. And he's actually willing to pay his own way there. He thinks he's taking the path of least resistance. Boy, is he going to find out differently pretty soon. Satan loves to deceive us, doesn't he? And you're taking the easy way out. And our culture affirms that. They teach the same thing. If it feels good, do it. Run the opposite direction of what's hard. Run the opposite way that God wants you to go and escape to your own Tarshish. Charles Stanley, I heard him on the radio the other day, he said a believer's calling and obedience means being available to do what God wants you to do, not necessarily doing what you want to do. Being available. Some of you say, well, I'm not sure what God wants me to do. I don't know my calling. We all have a calling. To love him and to show others who this one in your life that gives you such joy of salvation See, but I'm probably supposed to have a specific calling. Stephen Furtick from Elevation Church said this, some of you are using the concept of a calling as a crutch to not fully embrace the season of life that you're currently in. And that is not the will of God for you. The only thing that God has ever wanted from you was all of you. Jonah forgot. And we're all professional forgetters. He forgot the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. And the second is like it, love others as yourself. So wherever you are right now, love him. Show others who he is in your life. And you're fulfilling your calling. And if you're not doing that, what rebellion are you in that's keeping you 3,000 miles from God? And maybe depriving others of the opportunity to hear about God from you. You know, it might just invite a tremendously difficult correction. Look at God's response to rebellion in the next verse. We're going to look at 4 through 8. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. God's not going to let his plan get messed up, is he? He wanted Nineveh ministered to, and he's going to make it happen. Now, these men were extremely well-seasoned sailors. These were tough, tough guys. And these ships were known for their sturdiness to make this journey across the sea through storms all the time, filled with cargo. These were cargo ships. So they were intentionally built super sturdy. So this storm is a doozy, like they've never seen before. A tempest. I'm sure our word temper comes from that. This tempest is violent. Being from the Midwest, I can kind of get a sense for it by picturing a tornado. A tornado on the sea. It's approaching them. Remember in Malachi when we look back at the idea that 
We couldn't possibly get an understanding for the intimacy of a relationship between us and God the way he intended it. So what we did is we, he gave us marriage as kind of a hint of a glimpse of what that relationship might look like. Well, our human minds also can't understand how severe God's wrath is. So he gives us just a hint of a glimpse with this storm. That's how bad it was. If it was written today, we might think of a nuclear bomb exploding instead of a storm on the sea. They're crying out, each to their individual gods. They're chucking their livelihood overboard in the hopes of saving their own lives. These tough, tough guys are panicky, and they're desperate. Meanwhile, where's Jonah? He's down below taking a nap. Is he a piece? I doubt it. How does he sleep during a storm like this? I have no idea. But certainly in some fashion, he's still trying to hide from all this. And you and I do the same thing. We don't feel like going to the next church event. Just don't go. Isolate in the bottom of the boat. Or, or keep church family out of your business instead of seeking connection where we can all be in unity through Christ, building one another up. When I don't feel like going and I go anyway, that's usually about the time that God has something super special for me there. And over time, as God sanctifies us, we start to look forward to and enjoy those things that we didn't want to do. I'm going to repeat what Charles Stanley said because I think it's important here too. A believer's calling and obedience means being available to do what he wants you to do, not necessarily what you want to do. So praying to false gods and tossing their cargo overboard didn't work, so the sailors cast their lots. Right? That was a common thing back in that time. They used these colored stones, sort of like dice, and they would throw them and they thought that they could then hear the uh, ultimate supernatural decision of the gods. Well, Yahweh, the God, used it this time to speak to them, pointing them to Jonah. All part of his plan. And they begin their analysis with that. The who, what, when, where, why, how. They start interrogating Jonah. Let's get busy pointing a figure at someone else and ignore our own sin of polytheism. Again, they're trying to logically and practically solve this. And while we might not pray to other gods, I'll tell you what, when I'm under the gun... I certainly try to figure it out for myself. That's my first step. Instead of praying and seeking God's first, I start chucking cargo overboard. Let's say, I don't know, let's say it's a problem with my car. What's the first thing I do? Well, what's wrong with it? How much does the part cost? Can I change it myself? Is it worth changing if I have to pay a mechanic, or is it, is it time to sell this car and buy a different one? And if I'm still not sure after all my logic and my work on it, then, then it's, God, what do you got for me on this? What do you want me to do? Wrong way around. Verse 9 through 12. We'll see this sort of looks like submission. God's making the sea more and more tempestuous, right? The tornado's now up to an F3. The sailors, it says, they were afraid before. Now it says they become exceedingly afraid when they find out that it's Yahweh that they're dealing with. They know of Yahweh. They know the God. This is the God who created all of the sea that's being stirred up. That's heavy. That's heavy for them. They're not taking that lightly. And now knowing that Jonah's a believer and they God, they go to him. Since you're at odds with him, what do we do to you to make this whole thing better for us? They're still just looking for relief for themselves. Let's take a little look at, deeper look at Jonah. It's beautiful that he takes accountability for his disobedience. Right? 
throw me overboard. So often we don't want to say, yeah, it's my fault. So he offers himself up to be sacrificed. And it sounds good at first. It sounds very Christ-like, and it is. It's a very faint shadow of Jesus that one should die for the many. But even that sacrificial offer is not enough to stop the tempest, is it? Why? Because true repentance by Jonah would literally be to turn around and head the other direction. What do we do to you? His answer could be, take me back to shore so that I can head to Nineveh. But he would take death rather than obedient to God's instruction. Jesus would take death in order to be obedient to God's instruction. And that's why Jonah is only a very faint shadow of Jesus. Also notice, what's Jonah's prayer been through all this? Did you notice? Nothing. Jonah never prayed before or during this whole thing. Even the sailors, as misguided as they were, they were praying to their respective gods. Here's something for us to ponder. How do we model Jesus in the midst of a storm? What kind of things would we rather do than take accountability for our disobedience and turn around and follow God's instruction? Verses 13 through 15. It starts out with, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. These men now know that the God who created the sea and is in charge of all of this, yet they're still refusing to submit to him. They still try to solve it by themselves, rowing hard. And what's God's response to that? The sea is more and more tempestuous. The tornado is now bumped up to an F5. I don't know if you've ever seen that kind of storm. I've seen some damage of an F4. But in an F5, it can take a piece of straw and actually penetrate an oak tree. And this storm is closing in on their ship that's creaking and bowing and squeaking and about to fall apart. Finally. Finally. After all this chaos and turmoil and hardship and consequence, these sailors submit. God's relentless storm that almost destroys their ship and drowns them all, turns them. They acknowledge the one true God as sovereign over all things, and they pray to Him. And we know that because the Lord is capitalized in this part. They pray for His mercy on their lives. Don't let us innocent folks die for this man's sins. They pray for His forgiveness, for getting ready to throw Jonah overboard. Lay not on us innocent blood. And they acknowledge that this action that Jonah the prophet is telling us to do is from your sovereign hand. Because they say, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They obeyed and they chucked him overboard. In our days here, a time of performance and self-help, as believers, we're called to forget our own rowing power as a solution and do it God's way. And we might be cast out. Or, more relevant, we might become outcasts. But if we don't do it God's way, he's demonstrated here that there will be consequences and they can be tempestuous and ugly. 
Don't you like that word, tempestuous? It just sounds so ominous, doesn't it? But besides self-help, it's also a time of avoiding troubles. We avoid accountability. We take the easy way out. We claim victimhood while we blame someone else. We'd rather anything else than take responsibility for something we've done. Much less be like Christ and accept responsibility for something we haven't done. What kind of storm is it going to take? How beautiful would it be if we would have faith through the storm rather than faith because of the storm. So we saw God's response to their failure to submit. What's God's response to their submission? Verse 15, and the sea ceased from its raging. Submission to God stopped this F5 tornado tempest storm in a brings peace and calm that's beyond all human understanding. God is God. And he's made himself known to all aboard this ship. How do we know? Verse 16 tells us, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And this is a healthy fear, along with a little afraid fear. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. God's wrath can be satisfied and we can be preserved. How? Giving up our own power and believing in the truth that is Jesus. Accepting the truth of the gospel that we are sinners with a debt that we cannot possibly pay. Submission by accepting the covenantal promise that Jesus, the only one worthy, paid the debt perfectly for all our sins, no matter how severe, through his death on the cross. God is God made known to all. He loves all and he preserves his chosen ones. So what we've got here is a common theme in the study of minor prophets where God demonstrates his power to use adversity to draw people to himself. While Jonah claimed to revere the one true God, these sailors actually did. How humbling would this have been for Jonah? I think about myself, how many times have I been humbled by maybe a, a co-worker who's a non-Christian who's demonstrated more Christ-like love and compassion and understanding and caring for someone than I did? Way too many. Way too many, and it breaks my heart. Here's where God took Jonah's disobedience, and he used it for good, though. If Jonah hadn't come aboard the boat, there would have been no storm. And with no storm, they wouldn't have seen God's power to bring it down and calm it. These men now know the one true God is their God. You see how we can't mess up evangelizing? Jonah messed this whole thing up, but God's plan came together. We can't mess up discipling. So don't put the anxiety on yourself to do it exactly correctly. If God has marked someone for salvation, God's going to work out the results. If we just stop rebelling and instead we're obedient and just do it, we'll find the joy in being a part of God's plan and his blessing as he works it out. So, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. God allows adversity, not as punishment. That'll come on judgment day for those who don't know Jesus. God allows adversity in our lives in the hopes 
that we will use the free will that he gave us to walk more closely with him. God allows adversity in the hopes that we'll walk closely with him. And I promise you, I promise you that it is so much sweeter than any escape that you're indulging in. Actually, scratch that. God promises you. God promises you. The unchangeable God, creator of the universe, promises you that walking closely with him is sweeter than any escape that you're indulging in. These sailors figured they were putting Jonah to death because they're, they're in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea and tossing him overboard in the worst storm they've ever seen. Jonah could not have survived that by swimming. God's plans won't be disrupted, though. And he intervenes miraculously, and he provides a way to preserve. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And we all know how that fish transports him to land. So God still has work for Jonah to do. He's not done with him. That's why he didn't let Jonah die by his own words of hurl me into the sea. If God was done, he would have taken Jonah's life in a way that God determined, not Jonah. God will take us home when he's done with us. Another, another example of God loving all and preserving his chosen. So you see how Jonah's a story about God's mercy and God's patience and God's love and God's preservation? That's the gospel. God loved those sailors who worshipped other gods and wanted them to know him, even as ignorant as they were. He loved Jonah and preserved him, even as rebellious as he was. He loved the non-Jews in Nineveh and wanted them to know him, even as evil as they were. And knowing that in the near future, I think about 100 years, they're going to come in and decimate the land of Israel. Psalm 124.8, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And God's desire for the lost continues in the New Testament. Acts 26, the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. For us, God provides not a fish, but a Savior is the way. He's willing to forgive us, even knowing that soon afterwards, we're going to decimate our part. God loves you no matter how ignorant, how disobedient, <clears throat> and he wants you to know him, and he's provided a way for that. This is the good news of the gospel. Jonah is a story of the gospel. So whatever your storm is right now, and I know some of you are in a storm, it's health, relationships, finances. Maybe you're caught up in sin. We let Satan fool us into thinking that it will work when we run away from God in the opposite direction. Trying to escape through getting drunk, pornography, gossip, performance, overwork, home projects, food, but shutting out the light that's God allows darkness to take over. And then we just presume upon God's grace that the storm of that darkness won't be too bad. 
or we row harder, right? Like the sailors, trying to be a better Christian, trying and trying and trying to break free of those body-surfing ocean waves that are holding us down on the ocean. But Eric Redmond said this, all you'll do is die in the waters of the storm around you. 1 Corinthians 10. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, our only hope, our only hope, lies in submission. Submission to the truth about a flowing stream of blood and torn flesh from a pierced Savior. Charles Spurgeon said this, For the Christian, there is no blow from God's angry hand, not even so much as a single frown of punishment. We may, by storms, be chastened by the Father, but God, the judge, has nothing to say to us, but I have absolved you. You're acquitted. Sin may still stand in our way and irritate us with perpetual warfare, but it's a conquered enemy to every soul who's in union with Jesus. No lust is too powerful. No entangling sin is too strongly entrenched. We can overcome through the power of Jesus. Our sin may kick and struggle. He says, but it's guilt its shame, and its fear is gone. It is doomed to die. I have blotted out your transgressions. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Come to me, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest. Man, dear God, let nothing hold me back from you. Now, if you're not a believer... Isn't that something that you want to be a part of? See this in the story. God is most of all holy, holy, holy. And he's love too, but he's also justice. So he does have wrath. A wrath that is tempestuous. It's unimaginable horror. And it will be handed down. It's a wrath that must be satisfied by one of two ways. Either by our eternity in hell... Or by the power of Jesus. That's the only two ways that God's wrath is satisfied. And God promises that this tempest of wrath will pass you by if you accept his solution to let it pass you by. Jesus loves you so much that he paid that debt for you in order to satisfy God's wrath. And it's the only way. So I'm going to ask you that if you don't know Jesus today, Pray for God to drive you to submit to that very truth from your heart. Not just your head, but from your heart. In a way that fundamentally changes you. That storm of wrath can cease eternally for you. Let's pray. You can bow your hands or you can raise them up on high where he is. Father, your psalm told us this morning, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Papa, you are all-powerful. And at the same time, you love us so intimately. You're always reaching out to us. Even, Even when we're running thousands of miles in the opposite direction, you're reaching out to us. That is love beyond all measure. 
Forgive us, God, for rowing and rowing and rowing against your wind and waves. And we just beg you to interfere with our own plans and our version of truth that separates us from you. Thank you that you pursue us and you point us to the absolute truth. Strengthen our faith in the midst of the storms and drive us closer and closer to you through repentance and faith in the truth that is Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.